0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film.
1: And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because
0: every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 119 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me to talk through our first live action foreign film is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Bonjourno. That was pretty good. I like that. Yeah, that's good stuff. I've
1: been practicing.
0: <laughs> I can tell. This week officially kicks off what will hopefully be the first of many opportunities for our listeners to have a say in what we talk about on the show. Uh, we're calling these our premium picks, where you can, quote, kind of sponsor a film that you'd like to see covered. Meredith, one of our longtime listeners, chose Life is Beautiful, which has been sitting on my shelf for a good while, waiting to be watched. And when she sent it to me, yes, she sent it to me, everyone. I think I remember talking about this about a year ago, how just amazed I was that someone sends me movies and I'm not even an official movie critic, you know, that's crazy. She told us that this was by far one of her favorite movies, so much so that she actually keeps copies, additional copies of this on her person so that she can give it to people because of how much she believes in it. If I had this opportunity, I would totally do this with Sing Street, um, because I think it's worthy of that as well. But this was the first time I'd ever heard of somebody doing this, and it definitely warranted a discussion. Apologies for however long later it happens, but hey, here it is, right? Before we get into the movie itself, uh, Aaron, do we have any announcements? We do. And now you've got me thinking, like, what would be my movie that I pushed on people
1: or gave out copies of? And, you know, as much as there are other movies that probably rank above it, in my top 100 list or top 10, I think I would still probably be the La La Land pusher that everybody expects me to be. I think I gotta gotta stick with that.
0: That makes sense.
1: Well, listeners, if you like what you hear in this episode and you want to know more about how this premium picks thing works, you can do that by visiting our website and checking out feelinfilm.com slash premium dash picks. And there's a blog post there with an explanation of how you can go about getting involved and sponsoring a film that you want us to cover. We also have a second episode that is going to be dropping alongside this one tonight slash tomorrow morning. And this episode is going to explain our upcoming director battle month. I'm not going to go into details now. I'm going to make you listen to that one because it's going to have them a lot more fleshed out. But you're going to want to listen to that. And I urge you to do so in a timely manner Because as of that episode going live, there are about three days before voting starts. And you need to be in our Facebook group, essentially, to be participating in that. So give that episode a listen, get the information, and then come join us for that whole month of awesomeness. Also, we just want you to check out our friends' great podcasts. And Brennan and JD have been doing awesome work over at In Session Film. I don't know what they're covering next I'm hoping that they're going to be doing an eighth grade episode like we did uh, soon because I know that J.D. saw it and he loved it. But here's a word from them about what their show is like. Hello, everyone. This is J.D. from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. OK, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, sir.
0: (laughs) All right. And with that, let's get into our discussion. As always, at this point in the show, we go spoilerific. So give yourself an opportunity to see this. I believe right now it's actually streaming on Netflix. And um, at least as of yesterday, it was. So give yourself a chance to see it before coming back, because I I think there's a lot in this movie that is definitely spoilery. And we don't want you to, to... well, be spoiled. So why don't we go ahead and start with our one word takeaways. And I will go ahead and kick us off by giving mine. And the one word that I took from this was eccentric. Now, if you've seen the movie, you can probably say that's absolutely correct. And you could also say, Pat, you're a moron. What are you thinking? Um, (laughs) The movie itself and, and its main character took me by surprise in this and I'm putting this in quotes because this is from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of What Eccentric Is. It's unconventional and slightly strange, unquote, way of telling a story. Like the anime I'm watching, I didn't want to look at any background information on it. So I walked away feeling really weird about my response to it. Was it a comedy? Was, was it a drama? Was it a war film? And of course, I go to the old IMDb, and it was actually all three. At least that's how it's cataloged or categorized. And even now I'm still trying to come to grips with what I really thought, like writing these notes a couple of days ago, you know, that's what I wrote down, but I'm actually literally still having thoughts of like, how do I feel about life is beautiful? Because I was really fascinated and disturbed at the same time by the events of the movie, not knowing if I should cheer or be upset or both at the same time. And I think the title is, ironically and literally fitting because it can be both symbolic and actual in a sense, based on the perspective, based on the point of view of how we're being told from the point of view of Joshua. And it's just, I I don't really have any more words than that. I, I will obviously throughout the conversation, but as far as my initial, just like, what did you think? Eccentric is the only word that I could think of that comes to mind. How about you? Well, my word is very
1: similar and means almost the same thing as eccentric. So they're close to being synonyms. Uh, and my word was whimsy. And that's because that's the way that I felt about the film as well. Just the, the tone of it and the way in which the events play out are whimsical and surrealistic almost. Um, not in a, in a hyper artistic way that you normally think of surrealism with, crazy colors really drawing your attention to it but just in that way that says this doesn't feel like it's necessarily natural like you i didn't read anything about the film before seeing it i'd heard it was very emotional and i knew that it was set during the holocaust but nothing else i certainly was not expecting a comedy uh, due to the topic and i'll admit that i found myself slightly waiting for the other shoe to drop uh, and the film to get super serious which Never really happens though, and that was a bit of a conundrum for me. I really did adore the humor and Benini's uh, performance, especially, but his wit and his unceasing demeanor of positivity—you know, often in the face of this overwhelming hate and or danger—was as inspirational as it was hilarious. But that being said, I feel like the depth of my emotional reaction was definitely hindered by the film never letting up with the whimsy. So. I'm right where you are here. A couple of days after watching this, I'm still torn. I haven't even rated this yet on Letterbox, and that's incredibly rare for me. Usually I do that immediately, and I don't know what it is. I wanted to have this conversation first. I'm glad that we saw it, though, and I did find it to be incredibly sweet, and it's a very unique look at how a person could you know, choose to face the evil of something like the Holocaust and the struggles of life in general. But I also think there might be a way in which this film can be framed that helps me connect with it more. And I'm hoping we can discuss that a little bit later on.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I love about doing the show with you is the obvious about having discussions like this, but also the participation that we get from our listeners, Um, mainly in our Facebook group. That's where a lot of the magic happens. But in this particular instance, uh, Meredith decided to essentially become a guest on the show without necessarily having to be here. And she put in a copious amount of, her own thoughts in an email to us in preparation for, for this. So we're going to include her one word takeaway as well as her connecting point in this. And, uh, and that may be some kind of perk maybe that we might include in premium picks that will invite your, you know, if maybe it's 10 people, I don't know, but <laughs> for a movie, we'll see. But, uh, at least for this one, we're going to include her stuff. So her one word takeaway was love. And she, kind of backed up by saying, I know cheesy or whatever, but I love her explanation because she says that this movie isn't a romance. It is a true love story. It's the story of a love of a family, a love between Guido and Dora, this husband and wife and the love between Guido and his son, uh, Joshua or Jake. I couldn't tell what the, um, Joshua is Joshua. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to make sure I remember that from now on. I can never remember if it's Joshua or Jacob because of the Italian, but, it it is just that it's a great way to sum up. It's a story of love. If you could sell it to someone, that would be a way to do it because all of those statements are true. And you have these pairings of love relationships and how they play out throughout the film. And I wanted to talk to begin the conversation about some of these relationships. And let's, let's center the conversation first upon our main character, the director, writer, and star of this movie, uh, Guido as the main character. And I'm not going to attempt to say the director's name because I don't want to offend anybody's ears in Italian or otherwise. So his Roberto character name. Roberto Panini. Okay. So if we could just put that in post, anytime I say the director uh, uh, then we're good. So maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. Regardless, Guido is the character's name and that's how I'm going to refer to him. One of the things that drew me to him was this positive outlook and attitude that I think you mentioned a little bit of, but I know Meredith included in her notes and that he tries to encourage others around him from the very beginning, uh, that opening car ride, how he <laughs> basically goes with the flow. I think it's a fantastic opening where they have this out of control car that goes through this crowd of people who are waiting for like a king and queen. And <laughs> he just embraces the fact that they think it's him for a minute. And so he's just saying, hi, hi, hi. And then of course he leaves and then the real king and queen come in and they're like, who are these you know, who are these is here, but it sets up what we get throughout the movie as a guy who really tries to lean on this side of positivity, on this side of optimism, even in the face of danger, in the face of embarrassment, in the face of prejudice and racism. And I wanted to know, did, did you like that about him? Uh, at least in the beginning stages of the first half of the movie, did that appeal to you, his humor and the way in which he approached life?
1: You know, I don't know if I liked it about him or not. I will say I was entertained by him mm-hmm. because he reminded me in some ways of my own father, um, who very, <laughs> yeah, I can't, and he's a constant joker and he likes to make light of everything. And mm-hmm. so it was a rare occasion when I would see him be very, very strictly serious. Um, especially out in public, you know, when it, when it came to things like this, where something would happen and I would be like on edge, and, and nerves would be all over me. He would he would be just like Guido, and just go with the flow, and just like oh whatever, we're gonna make the fun of have have fun out of it. And so, I related to him in that way, but I also found him kind of off putting in a sense because I don't know off putting is not the word, but it's it's a mannerism that he has that I just do not possess. This is not my character in life. I would freak out. I'm the guy who. Would I mean, I I would lose my mind over this situation. I would be worried about the fact that we just disrupted the King's arrival and all of these people. Like, I would be worried about everything around me and all of the circumstances and not just enjoy the moment. And I know that about myself. So watching him go through this was kind of just an interesting experience. But I do like how he has this outlook and it just carries forth throughout the entire film in every aspect of his life. And I think... That was the biggest thing for me was consistency with Guido. He never wavers. He doesn't change. Um, He is that same guy from the beginning clip of the movie to the very last moment he's on screen.
0: Yep, absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned not necessarily enjoying him because of at least your personality. That's not who you are. He's completely who I would want to be. I'm the guy that provides levity in a room full of people that are yelling at each other that makes that joke or does that bad Chris Chris Walken impression. Maybe it's good, depending on who you are in the room with me. And I think providing that air, providing that sense of what could come across as not taking something seriously could also be retranslated as evening out the emotion of a situation. Because there are times when within the film and then in life in general, we elevate things beyond what they should be in terms of their level of importance. And sometimes we need somebody to come in and say, Hey, you're really just talking about this, that, and the other. And we go, you know, you're right. And so he, he represents in his eccentricity, a point of humility for a lot of us. And I think he represents maybe to an extreme, and I can see that point being made. Um, but he represents someone who I think wants to bring people back from their extremes. So if you have a a life of, if, if you're a, if you're a person who lives life very pensively, he brings balance to that if he's in your world. And I think it's very much reflective in his relationship with, and I don't remember the guy's name, but it's the guy he's with at the very beginning who is going on to be a, an upholstery maker. And there's a particular scene where they are, um, they're, they're sharing a bed and there's a scene where he's talking to his friend and his friend basically falls asleep. And he's like, how did you do that? And he's like, well, I just willed myself to sleep. And it's a gag because he's like using his hands, like fall asleep, fall asleep. And it's funny. It's very much like a Marx brothers, like a Mel Brooks moment, but it pays itself off later on. And it's still used as somewhat of a gag, but it's more of for, somewhat dramatic effect. And I, and I think those are, those are great things that as a director, he throws in to say, look, what I'm putting in here at the beginning has importance in other parts of the film. And I think Guido as a character is like that, where he takes his humor and he takes his, his kind of goofiness and he uses it to protect and empower in a lot of ways. Um. One of the. Also,
1: he's also very resourceful, and that's the other thing that I like about. Yes, uses his wit and his humor to achieve things. So when he is initially meeting Dora, he kind of turns that situation into six free eggs to make this great breakfast omelet, and then there's a constant running gag of him trying to get the hat that he wants, right? And it culminates the last time that we see that gag play out is where he's in the rain and his hat that he had, he had achieved stealing the hat that he wanted, but now the hat is soaking wet because he's been in the rain. And so he yeah. manufactures a way to get his old hat back, which is actually dry. And it's just, it, it's brilliant the way that he kind of uses this wit to mm. actually influence his life circumstances as well. Um, and, I, and I think that was really kind of special. And that's not something I see people do in real life. Yeah. When people make jokes, it's like you said, it's usually to to bring levity to a situation, but not necessarily as a means of kind of transitioning through
0: actual activities of sorts. It was just it's right.
1: really mind boggling.
0: Yeah. And his relationship with Dora, I think is a, is a good example of that, that scene that you talk about specifically, I think, but I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's her that does that little mind trick in order to get his hat back because he's like, yeah, I can't leave because I've got it, a wet hat. And she's it's like, not, Wait. it's the
1: praying joke. It's the praying it's, joke. It's a praying joke. He prays oh, like for a key. That's right. He prays, um And Dr. Lessing comes up to him and says something. And yes. so she's seen it work twice. And so she's like, well, I'm just going to pray that you get your hat back. And he's already like, he's calculating. I mean, that's the thing He's like, he's not just some goofball. Mm-hmm. He has calculated that he's seen the guy coming he knows that the guy's going to notice him and, and want to put the hat back on his head and he's just going to allow it to happen this time and it works out perfectly so that she's like oh, it's an act of the gods
0: you know and it's a very it's, it's but it's a very similar type of thing because of the fact that he's teaching her whereas you know, just like his friend taught him about the the mind the mind trick and watching him in his relationship with Dora how he literally runs into her the first time or she falls into his arms. And and then he runs into her with the bike and he says, we've got to keep meeting like this essentially, like by falling down or, or rolling in the hay or whatever it is. I really, really enjoyed their chemistry because to me it felt a lot like a, a comedy team where you have the comedian and the straight person where she played the straight person and he was the comedian. And so it made the, his pursuit of her that much more entertaining. But I love the fact that it echoes throughout the back half of the film. And it, it almost makes it more substantial where um, you could look at their, essentially, here's what I thought. I thought the movie was going to be about his pursuit of her. That's, not knowing anything about the movie. That's what I thought it was. And so when he finally got her and they're married and the movie fast forwards like, what, six years later? I'm like, okay, well, where can it go from here? So I was surprised at how his love for her, the way he wooed her, the way he pined for her, and the way he adored her still echoed in the back half of the film and actually made an important plot point from it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a tale of two stories completely. There's there's this... Very jarring in a way. Break where we transition from this whole build up, and it's about fifty minutes ish in. I was paying. I paid note of it, and I really liked the relationship as well from that very first moment with her. He's just so suave. He, you know, tells her that he needs to suck the poison out of her leg in order to get close to her, and Mm -hmm. he just he makes all of these sweet little comments. The other thing that he did that. I really loved is that moment in that scene where he's in the opera and he's just staring at her. Yes. And yes. the lady next to him is like, what are you doing? Because like, that's how anybody would respond. And without blinking, without a, a missing beat, he says, I'm deaf in my, my right ear. So I'm, I'm, you know, listening. <laughs> so he, again, so perfectly a, a very reasonable explanation and you'd buy it, right? She does buy it. And, um, and he's just staring at her and it's not in that creepy, like me too, uh, way it's in just a longing. Like Mm. I wish that I could spend time with this person. It's not, there's no sexual desire on his face or in his demeanor. It's, it's, it's a true romantic feeling of love or of desire to actually spend time with someone and get to know them. I mean, he, he goes so far as to steal this, um politicians whatever sash and like go in and have this great charlie chaplin great dictator-esque moment Mm -hmm. of comedy where he is arguing against um racism and and all of the nazi type stuff that's going on so but he does all of that to get close to her Mm -hmm. right everything
0: he's doing is kind of trying to manufacture ways to see her and I, i just think it's very very sweet I think it is too. And, and, and that really makes up the entire first act is the way that we, we're really getting introduced to him and his, his personality. Um, the way in which he cares for and really deeply desires to, to be with her. And when I, when I was watching it, I I remember thinking that it was like a really fun series of sketches wrapped up in a story about pursuing a woman. And I was like, I can get behind this. This is fun. I I, I can, I can cheer for this guy because I want him to get her. Um, And what was almost my connecting point before the second half of the movie hit was that scene under the table at her, I guess it was her engagement party of some kind where she sees him uh, Drops some like what looks like jelly beans or something. And she goes under the table to talk to him. And she quite literally stoops to his level and also figuratively because here's a lady who is not meant to be any more than this sophisticated person. She comes from high society and here she is crawling on the floor in pursuit of this goofball that absolutely adores her. And I love that moment. I thought if that was going to s- s- just, signify the moment of their relationship and what it was all about that was it right there and then the second half of the movie hit <laughs> and to me there was definitely a shift in tone when the house was ransacked right before Joshua's birthday party uh things kind of got real and so i felt as though i you know much like full metal jacket i was getting two distinct movies and so going back to the 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 uh, the Modine interview I was like okay where are the three acts because he obviously said there wasn't two movies it was three acts I'm trying to think okay what are the three acts of this film and I think the the second act begins with that with that tonal shift of the the move to the concentration camp how did you feel about that did you feel like there was a shift or did it naturally flow where and, and where did you land well no
1: on? like like I was saying a minute ago I, it is a jarring total shift and it is it is very clearly a difference of how the film is playing because we go from sweet wit and, and joy immediately to a bookstore scene where he's experiencing some sort of racism and we know things are not all the way right. And because we have an understanding of what happened during this time period and what the Holocaust was, when these men show up at his door and say, we need you to come with us, Like, we don't need the movie to give us any kind of on-the-nose explanation for that. We already are putting ourselves in the mindset of, oh, crap. Like, we know what could be coming. It's very clear. And the movie does set this up some with, you know, the Jewish hate vandalism on the horse kind of thing going on earlier. Um, but it is, it is very, very different. And, um, and we quickly go, what I notice is, you know, we quickly move to him basically being in the camp and the fact that Dora goes with him, I'm, I'm a little torn on, um, you know, she comes to him and she says, I, I want to go with my husband. And the soldiers are like, no. And she's like, no, I want to get on that train. And the soldier just looks at her. And finally he's like, all right, fine. You know, like, you want to be that way then Get on the train. I wonder somewhat if that's realistic, uh, if that would have taken place. Um, I found it to be sweet and tender. I-, I loved, again, this moment we have of Guido with his son on the truck as they're going away. And he's, he's got this laugh. And, uh, you know, I personally felt that it was very awkward And whether this was his intention or not, it felt to me like a person who was kind of forcing themselves to laugh where their voice was cracking and they were scared to death. I mean, I felt that in the way that he was laughing. Um, Throughout the time he was telling these jokes and trying to get his son to believe they were going to this party. And, you you know, the faces on the men in the truck at that point are – telling you everything you need to know and so it quickly gets you to that point where you're like okay now what's going to happen because are we going to stay a full comedy like we've been for the last half of the movie or not i know i was expecting it not to be i was expecting that tonal shift to carry forth in a much more serious way and that
0: was what made it a little bit tough for me to take it all in right and his relationship with Joshua is really where this blossoms is in that truck scene and eventually in the camp because we don't have a lot of his relationship with Joshua until that moment uh, we get pockets of it in a couple of scenes earlier and and that's when the real i think surprise of the aha moment or the what the heck moment happens when he actually starts convincingly for his son telling him that he's basically on a game show he's basically about to compete in a competition where he has he has to earn a thousand points and if he earns a thousand points he gets a live tank and this is where i disconnected but didn't want i didn't disconnect in a way that i disconnected with fallen kingdom where i was just looking at my watch waiting for the movie to end by any means i was disconnected in that it didn't feel right. It didn't feel humanly believable that a dad would take these kind of hilarious risks with the life of his son by doing these things and by maintaining that deception. And this is where I'm still on the fence about, and I think it's really more about for me figuring out is that right? Is it right to do that? And I don't want to ask that question just yet because I want to ask a question before that. From a filmmaking perspective, from a story perspective, how did Guido's antics to protect Joshua in those later parts of the movie work for you? Like, I'm still on the fence. What about you? Did you come to a conclusion about it? Well, this scene maybe
1: could have been my connecting point where he goes up to be the translator for the Germans and Joshua, the look on his face of joy uh, amidst this situation is just such a shocking thing to see on screen. You see this little boy and all these people around him, just, you know, completely terror terrified. And he's got this smiling big eyes and face because his dad's telling him about this game show. And the, for about half of it, I was like laughing and I was smiling, and then it kind of went on and on, and I, I thought to myself, are we really going to just throw realism out the window? Because whether I felt he should or shouldn't do it, that's a great question, and I'm glad we're going to get to that, I started to think about whether he could have even possibly done this or not. Yeah. I find it very, very hard to believe that the Germans would have allowed someone to quote-unquote translate that information and have no idea what they were saying. I also find it hard to believe that the Italians in that room who didn't know German, who then did not get the information because Guido was making it all up, would have been able to manage effectively as well because they wouldn't have had that information and as we went on it did it became exceedingly unrealistic to me all the way up until the very end honestly um and so i it it did it disconnected it was it's a weird feeling like you said i'm I'm right there with you where i want to be emotionally impacted and it was funny because it was kind of like right at that moment when i texted you and i said something about how it was like ripping my heart out and then it kept going and going, and I realized I was not feeling that way anymore. Like, it wasn't really affecting me. It was kind of unaffecting me. And I was just shocked that I didn't have these tears on my face for the last 30, 40 minutes in this movie. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it almost plays against the movie's effect. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if that's what he was going for or not. I don't know what his intention of making us feel was. And I'll tell you, this was where I said in my opening that a different perspective potentially helps because since watching it, I've tried to think about this as you mentioned this too, Joshua's perspective. If Joshua was telling this story, then we are seeing everything Guido does through a Joshua memory lens, which means it's no longer realistic. It's, what Joshua saw, it's how Joshua observed it, and how Joshua remembers it, which could account for some of the lack of realism in my opinion, because as a five, six, seven year old boy, he's not going to pick up on everything and know everything that happens. And so I'm able to kind of enjoy it more if I think about it in terms of that if i if I think about it in terms of a straight, realistic story. I don't buy
0: it. Yeah, it's definitely not biographical by any means. But I think it's a great point that you bring up that we're looking at it from from his perspective as opposed to getting an omniscient narrator's point of view by understanding this sense of subjectivity when it comes to how Joshua saw this. Now, obviously, we're getting more pockets. Of that of It's not a true subjective from the point of view of his son because we see stuff outside of... <laughs> while he's, you know, hiding and things like that. But I think that it helps, it helps us absorb the, the weird tones that we're feeling, this sense of heightened slapstick, but not quite Mel Brooksy, and moments of drama, but not Schindler's list drama. So it lives in this weird world where you have a close emotional moment. That's kind of, blown out by humor or a real comedic element that then gets thwarted by drama uh, case in point when he's being led away in one of the last scenes when is being led away by the Nazi soldier, he looks back at the door where his son is hiding. And he makes that, he did it earlier in the film. He makes that, that over you know, bombastic marching to make his son feel like, Hey, they've captured me. I'm lost, but you still won. And then a minute later, he walks around a corner, gunshots, the Nazi soldier just walks away. And we're like, what? Wait, no, what? What just happened? I'm so torn on that.
1: I I love the choice to have that take place off screen and have the Nazi soldier just walk out of the doorway. But again, this is that, confliction that is still inside me two days later because half of me feels like man that's powerful right he does this thing for his son willingly going to his death knows what's about to happen goes around the corner he dies and we see the juxtaposition of Joshua being ambival- or uh, oblivious to it and mm-hmm. then ending up being saved shortly thereafter but then there's this other half of me that says there's no way. I'm sorry, but there's no way. I, I don't care how great of a man. Like, I, I have this Mr. Rogers moment where it's like he can't really be Mr. Rogers. He can't really possibly in that moment do that action walking toward his death, knowing that's the last moment he's going to have his son see him and see him, you know, without any emotion, without any fear in his voice or in his demeanor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: knowing you're walking toward your death. Like, I, I mean – it's inspirational in a way, but I just I it's hard for me to buy
0: because it's it is. so not normal. And if you if you're looking at this from a US filmmaking perspective, from a Spielberg perspective, what you would probably see is those same movements, that same choreography, but you'd see a close up of Guido and a change in his eyes where he's looking back at his son and he looks Desperate he looks sad, and I think that 's what 's missing for us because and maybe this is one of those interesting things about foreign film is that we 're getting Italian culture we 're not getting American culture, and so maybe there's something to be said about our Americanization of our perspective on this i mean this this one best foreign film it won an Oscar for this, and we joke every year when we do our Oscar picks of like. It's a crapshoot because none of us have really seen any of the foreign films. And so we're just like, whatever the best name is, we'll go with that. Not to disrespect them, but foreign films are just that. They're, they're foreign to us. So maybe we're disconnected on a multitude of levels, not only from our own interpretation of the movie personally, but even culturally. Um I'd be interested to th- to wonder if there's an Italian culture that says this makes sense to us. this is how we handle mm-hmm. Italian drama and Italian comedy uh when they're when they're brought in. I know Mel Brooks actually commented on this and he said it was disgusting essentially. He didn't like the way that the Holocaust specifically was depicted in such a a light manner um and I want to counter that. By quoting Roger Ebert, because we love quoting Roger Ebert on this show. He's basically the third unofficial number, member of the film. Yeah, for sure. And he says the movie actually softens the Holocaust the Holocaust slightly to make the humor possible at all. In the real death camps, there would be no role for Guido, which is as you mentioned earlier. But Life is Beautiful is not about Nazis and Fascists, but about the human spirit. It's about rescuing whatever is good and hopeful from the wreckage of dreams about hope for the future, about the necessary human conviction or delusion that things will be better for our children than they are right now. I absolutely believe in those statements. At the same time, I have a hard time connecting those statements to this film as a whole. I believe them, and I believe they exist in this movie, but I think there's still some separation for me because of the jarring comedy-drama juxtaposition.
1: Exactly. And that's why I don't think it's a knock
0: on the film necessarily.
1: I think it's a, an unfortunate causal effect of just how we receive it. And maybe it's better on multiple viewings when you know, it's coming and you can prepare yourself for just taking it in, in a certain way, because I do find it inspiring. I've said that several times and that's the word that I would go to is it makes me want to be like this. You know, it makes me want to be able to face, evil and fear and all of these tragedies with this same level of making things better and always finding the good in the situation we say those buzzwords to each other all the time but this is seeing it in action in the midst of something very trying um, and yet we're conditioned to just look for that realism and go but that's not possible
0: so I think, I think where I'm starting to come around is the fact that as human beings, we believe in what the movie's trying to tell us. We just don't agree with the methodology. And because of the fact that, the, because the fact is not all of us are Guidos, not all of us are these class clowns who know how to find the levity in a particular situation. That in a situation like being in a Nazi death camp, you're meant to be dramatic. There's no place for comedy in Nazi Germany. There's no place for comedy in concentration camps unless you're doing a spoof on it, unless you're trying to make fun of this this world or you're trying to, to go in a Mel Brooks-type sense of just sort of being satirical. I don't completely agree with that now because the fact is that what the movie does from the very beginning is it sets us up with a character whose strengths are then used to protect his son. So maybe not all of us can look at that and go, that's not right. But I think the real answer is it's not what I would do because that's not who I am. And I'm not Guido. As much as I like to say I'm a personality like that, I'm not Guido. And I don't know that I could do that to my son. But in the midst of that, maybe I would. If I had a, if my five-year-old and I got captured and we were thrown in a prison and he didn't know what was going on, maybe I would because of maybe I would use my resources regardless. And I think that's where I connect with Guido.
1: Right. And I think that's the thing is that Guido is using his resources. He's not using my resources. He's not using your resources. Guido is built of this ilk. This is who he is. He is witty. He is resourceful. He uses his humor. And and that's what I loved about the film building up to this is that he does it in his entire life. It is flowing throughout every decision he makes. So it's not surprising that he would try to do this. I see it also like this. You have to make a choice when you're in this situation, you're probably expecting not to get out of this alive. Most of these people did not expect that. And so how do you want to go out in, in a sense is possibly how it can be too. Do you want to live your last moments in fear? I mean, especially once the kids all get killed, what do you want to do? Do you want to have Joshua just staying up there scared all day? Or do you want to try? I mean, if, if there's a potential he gets caught, there's a potential he gets found out, there's a potential your ruse all falls apart, what's the worst that's going to happen? It's no worse than what's going to happen if you don't even do it in the first place. And I think Mel is wrong as well because there are a couple things that are extremely powerful reminders of the Holocaust in this movie that are not humorous. And that is what I said when the kids go to to be murdered and he's trying to explain to his son – Find a way to tell him no, they don't make soap and buttons out of us after burning us down to ash that made my stomach turn listening to him try to i I could not I put myself in his shoes for a second I was trying was like how might I ever explain this to my own children That's an awful moment that and then there is a very striking image there's two of them actually one is right after all of those elderly and children are killed and The remaining people are sorting clothes into different piles oh that hurt and then the other is just a very brief shot of guido as he's walking around at night in the there's a smoky air and it's towards the end of the film when things are going crazy and the nazis are trying to clean everything up and and get rid of everybody and you just see the backdrop behind him and there is a mountain of skeletons and that Almost made me just like v- like physically ill. So Brooks is wrong. <laughs> I, I just can't agree with him that the film completely treats it as a joke.
0: I think I've come to the conclusion that the separation that we have is the fact that comedy is typically associated with not caring. <laughs> uh, in my experience with the forty eight, we jokingly say that comedy is memorable, but it's also easy. If you can make people laugh, that's memorable, but it's a lot harder to do drama. And I think that attitude exists in maybe the approach of the film or the audience approach to the film and why Mel Brooks has this issue is that he may assume that comedy isn't appropriate, but I think that Guido's resources are more than appropriate because of the love that he has for his son and the fact that it's set up so early on that consistency sells it for me. And so it leads me into my final question before um, we get into our connecting points, which is what I'm calling this matrix effect, this idea of ignorance being bliss, taking the red pill versus the blue pill kind of thing, because that's essentially what's happening here. Guido is essentially throwing the matrix over his son's eyes by telling him that he's entering this contest And the big question that comes up is, was he right? But I think you've sort of answered it already in the fact that for him, it was right because the alternative was going to be the same thing. Death was, death was the result, regardless of whether or not his plan succeeded or failed. And the end of the film seems to answer that question as well. But does it make his life better? Not knowing and walking through tragedy or facing tragedy head on? I think that's the bigger question that I wanted to ask. Is it better to not know that you walk through that and then realize it later or face it head on and build from that?
1: So I like the analogy, but I don't think it's a necessary one-to-one because when we think about the matrix and making a choice to live in the matrix, it's not a temporary solution. It's not a means to an end. You're not choosing to live in the Matrix so that you can eventually get out of the Matrix. You're choosing to live in the Matrix because you just are giving up on the real world. And that is not at all what Guido is pushing on Joshua. Everything he's doing is a propulsive act to get him to be alive. And so because of that, I have to say, I 100% do agree with him because if he believes this is his best shot to protect his child to use his skills and his personality in a way that will get his son to the finish line which is out of this situation and alive then you have to accept whatever kind of mental trauma comes with not having gone through that tragedy or having had it happen in this situation otherwise we're banking on. We're saying that we would rather him have a higher chance of just dying than coming out of it with PTSD. And I, I would say I would take the PTSD in a heartbeat if I'm alive and have to deal with that.
0: So it looks like there's two things happening here in this situation. Guido's protecting protecting his son from this ugliness that's going on. In the same way that we would protect our children from more adult themed type stuff like i was uh, introducing my son to some of the early nintendo games like donkey kong and um even some of the atari games like river raid Uh, i showed him zelda kung fu you know just all these really cool simple games that i'm going to want him to play with me uh simple objectives uh, side scrolling type things and i told him i said listen if you're ever in my office just know that you need to be with me to play these games because there are other games on here that aren't age appropriate. He goes, what does that mean? And I had to simply say, there are games that you're not ready to play yet. And that sounds wrong because it, you could take that argument that, well, if they're not appropriate, maybe you shouldn't be playing. No, there, there are themes, there are ideas, there are, there's information in life that needs to come at certain ages that needs to come in certain moments And the world that we live in right now, go ahead. What?
1: I was just going to say, when you have the ability and human development to comprehend it
0: and to understand it, make sense of it. Unfortunately, things like the internet and the the immediate access that we have to information, kids are growing up, I think, faster than they should. And I'm not going to turn this into a parenting discussion. But as an example, I think what Guido saw in this situation was he wasn't just sheltering his child he was protecting him from something that he probably wasn't going to be able to understand at that moment. And it would have been worse for him anyway. And so I think he's doing that, but he's also like you said, trying to get him to an end, which is out of that situation. He's trying to find an opportunity where he does not have to experience that anymore. Cause you're right. I think Guido was optimistic to think this was going to end at some point. Um, I don't know how long they were actually in the camp. But I feel like there's that duality that he's not only protecting him from the situation at hand, but also using it, using the situation at hand to get him to an end. Whereas the, the Matrix is just the one half of right. that. It's just, it's just the, the covering of the eyes to say, this isn't the world that you know.
1: I'll also say, I think that this has helped me come around on the very, very end, because when I first watched this and the tank rolled up, I audibly sighed and roll my eyes. And I was like, come on, get get out of here. Like, no, not going to just give me the perfect ending because he, he loses his dad, but he gets a tank, yay. But in hindsight, that's actually realistic because it's very likely that that tank would have rolled down that street. And knowing what we know, being in Joshua's perspective, Joshua feels at this point, he still doesn't understand what's happened. He feels like he's won a game. So why wouldn't he equate in his young child's mind this tank to him winning? And it's the perfect scenario, right? He can't understand what the American's saying because it's English. So it actually works a lot better for me when I again put myself in Joshua's shoes. And if I, if I just watch the whole second half of this film from him, I think that I will enjoy it when I see it again. Uh, a lot more. And and I hate using that word because it's not like I didn't enjoy this movie at all. It just left me more conflicted than I expected and, and thinking on it, which it can be a very good thing, obviously.
0: Annihilation did that for me as well. And I enjoyed it more the second time around. Yeah, so, look like, what happened to me the second time. Yeah, exactly. There we go. So there's yes. opti- there, there there's optimism for second viewings of Life is Beautiful. Well, let's get into our connecting points. And I'm going to go ahead and read Meredith, if that's okay. And then... um. We'll just flip for whoever goes next. <laughs> so Meredith wrote in and she said that hers is when Dora demands to get on the train. And I love that moment. I absolutely do. It wasn't my connecting point, but it was it was pretty close. And she says, up until this point, you know that Guido passionately loves her. But it's at that moment, you know, that she loves him just as much. which was a huge, huge point. She doesn't have to go. Like many real life families probably did. She could have waited at home likely terrified for her family while hoping and praying she would be reunited with them one day soon. She says, also, I can't imagine that sinking feeling Guido must have must have had seeing her standing on the platform. We see her as a fierce, strong woman. That strength is not lessened by the fact that she is still gentle and kind. Another favorite is uh, when she slips under the table and gives Guido the nudge. Um, He was holding out for, but she really highlights. I think Meredith highlights a great moment of a great thing about the duality of the film existing in Dora, where she is both gentle and kind, but strong and fierce. And she admits both those qualities and they're not in conflict with each other. So I think that's fantastic.
1: Yes, I agree. And it it highlights another, you know, part of Guido that I was mentioning earlier a little bit is that he is so quick to make decisions and that is a strength and a quality that we don't all have i would have reacted in shock and things would have gone differently because of how i reacted and we see this again during that scene where he's got his son in with the other orphans and his son accidentally speaks in italian and the guy goes down the hall to get the german and Guido has to think so fast. I mean, it's like Ethan Hunt quickness, man, Mm -hmm. like problem solving that he immediately like teaches all the kids Italian so that he can kind of cover it up and protect his son. If he didn't have those skills, this is not something everyone would be able to do. And so this is another moment where, you know, you and I probably would not been able to hold back emotional reaction to seeing our wife trying to get on that train with us. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have just been able to do that. And so seeing him do it is so moving. Um, and again, inspiring because Absolutely. it's nice. Um, I'm going to go next because you now mentioned my connecting point twice. Um, and that is faux
0: pas of the show. That's the fashion. That's the big
1: faux pas of the show is when you do that. So yeah, I mean, it apologize. is. Um, that's, that's okay. It means it's, I picked a good scene. So um, okay. mine is kind of, it's actually like a sequence of events and it starts with Dora slipping under the table that we've talked about at the engagement dinner table So yay, Meredith, you and I picked the same thing. I think she's going to be happy about that. Um, And I did not read your notes before I watched the movie. So it's legit, but she goes under the dinner table to kiss Guido. And at very first, like for a split second, I thought to myself, oh no, like we're not going to do this joke, right? Like this is silly. This is, again, we're going to be in this unreasonable place. But boy, I was swept away, Patrick, by the sweetness of this moment and this act. And by Dora, because she has been built up to this moment and we have seen her character slowly get to this point where we, should we believe she would do this? She goes under, she kisses him and she says, take me away. And then here he comes, he goes out, he gets on his horse like a knight. He rides in. It's wonderful because it's the slandered painted green Jewish horse. And he takes her away on top of it. He steals his princess away. It's so sweet, so hilarious at the same time. And they transition into going to the house and they can't get in the door. They're trying to open the door up and we see her walk off to the side to this open doorway and it looks like, I, think, I believe it's a greenhouse. And that's when we, they disappear inside and what we see come out is Joshua. And so it's amazing because we, we get this jump forward in time and it's seamless and we immediately realize that now they're married with a son. And I, I just felt like this is a great combination of sweetness and a, and a moment between Guido and Dora, and then an expert act of storytelling from a technique perspective to do this where I don't need any information. A young boy walks out of that door and I know exactly where we're at now in life. I know that we've fast forwarded in life because I don't need you to tell me that. I don't need you to show it to me any other way. Uh, And I just I thought that was brilliant uh, by Menini to be able to create an environment in which I was able to respond that way immediately without question. So that whole sequence is definitely and and it's the last sweetness and and kind of the last we get before we transition into the really rough Holocaust
0: portion of the film. So it's a it's a great first half resolution, I think. I mean, I think it really and it, it doesn't set the tone, obviously, for the for the back half, but it gives you. It gives you currency, emotional currency that leads into the, the second half of the movie. And so for me, the second half was really where a lot of the, the points of emotion came for me. And the one that stood out was when Guido got onto the intercom to let Dora know that he and Joshua were okay. And this moment sums up who Guido is as a character, both in showing the links he will go to in order to protect his son using those resources that we've talked about and also give hope to his wife Knowing that he's still alive. Because what you mentioned was the first half ended showing us the love that three people had for each other. And that love carries into this moment. Because Joshua thinks he's playing a game because Guido's selling it, not knowing that Guido is essentially getting a message to his wife. <laughs> he's being covert and resourceful. And he's letting her know that they're okay. And this is very, very important because. He's letting her know that was okay because Joshua's on the intercom too. Cause this takes place right after that aftermath of the gas chamber scene. And I think it's right after the moment where she's picking up clothes and she's actually probably looking for her son's clothes and her husband's clothes as she's filtering through. And then we get that scene and it's so powerful because you see, you hear the joy on his face or on his face. That's not really a way to do it. You hear the joy that comes out of his mouth and you can almost picture the, what his facial expression is, is doing. He's not faking anything. Like he's genuinely happy in that moment. And I think this is where the the title of the film lives the most appropriately. Life is beautiful at this moment because he's being who he is. And she's feeling this wonderful moment of saying he's alive. My, My family is alive. There's still hope there. And it's beautiful life is beautiful. And so is this moment, you know, so it's just great. And I absolutely loved it. And it, I think it's something that I feel like I would do. <laughs> Maybe not, but I want to feel like I could, I would do that. So it's uh, it's, it's really good, man. It is.
1: It is. I, I, my only problem with it is that I 100% believe that if he got on that mic and that intercom and his son was on that intercom as well, they're is, they're done. Like they're dead. Yeah. They're, they're That's, that was part of the disconnect for me. Yeah is that in doing that act and then saying they're coming after us, they're running like your the realism is out the door at that point. But yeah, we hear other voices after that. No, he tells him, he says something kind of muffled as, as if he's like moving away and he's like, we've got to go They're They're chasing us. And then he, they, you know, get off the mic. But the fact that, I mean, just the fact that it took place at all. The, the fact that it occurred at all. And they would have been able to, they would not have shut down that place by having guards all over the place looking for those two people and that child and torn it upside down is completely unrealistic and inconsistent with any other Holocaust depiction we've ever seen. But all that aside, it is an amazingly sweet moment because there's just no other way, right? Like what else are you going to do in order to let her know that you're alive? And I, I connected with it because of the Joshua portion even more so than him. I would, because that's how I would feel. I would want to let the know, let the kid's mom know that they're okay. Um, more so than
0: I would care about her knowing that I was okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, man, that's think it's a great choice. Thank you. And with that, I think that wraps up our first and only successful premium pick episode. So. We never
1: had a failure though. So we're, we're one still for
0: one. one. Yeah. One for one. So with that, Fantastic! That was a great discussion, <laughs> Aaron. Where can people find you on social media if they want to keep talking about this or other stuff? Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Phelan
1: film Aaron F E E L I N F I L M A A R O N. You can also find me tweeting out of the show's official account, FeelinFilm, and then you can find myself and Patrick both in our Facebook group. There's a link to that in the show notes. And there are links to that on the website and you can find it by also just typing feel and film into the Facebook search bar or typing into Google feel and film Facebook group. Basically you can find it pretty much any way possible if you actually want to. And we would love to have you come be a part of that place where there are amazing discussions happening every day. And just a quick reminder of what I said earlier, please Go ahead, if you haven't, and download the Director Battle Month episode that you will see in your feed right now alongside this and give that a listen because it's time-sensitive, it's got some information, and we want you to be able to participate in this event along with us throughout the month of August.
0: All right, yeah, and if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Uh, just be sure to just type that in the search bar and you can find me. Mission Impossible Fallout. It is upon us, my friend. Get ready. I'm ready. Oh, I'm ready. I'm 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 ready to see Henry Cavill just lock and load his fist about 50 times. He's only going to do it once, I imagine, but I'm I'm just I'm just waiting for that moment. Uh, that's enough to get me into the theater to watch this movie. I
1: hope the projection like freezes and starts to accidentally loop right at that moment and Seriously. we just
0: see it over and over and over. Seriously. Seriously, that, that moment should be Oscar worthy right there that's like they should create a category called best henry cavill moment and that's going to be it you know <laughs> um if, if if you don't know by now we're excited um and i'm getting prep for it i think you are as well we're going to be watching just involuntarily or whenever throughout the week hopefully the movies leading up to it till we can get all into the uh the fallout that is coming. Uh, be sure to check back next week and be a part of that discussion and the entertainment that will come from it as well. Thank you guys for listening and until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film.